In a world where three pudgy middle school history teachers discuss random aspects of history. Well, that's... that's all I got. No, Hatfield, we got you. Yeah, I, Wait, who you calling pudgy? Yeah, man, that's kind of rude. No, I'm rude. It's the History Bros Podcast. <laughs> Welcome into the History Bros, everybody. It is me, Jason Rude, once again here in the great state of Iowa, joined by Brian Geldmacher in Missouri and Jason Hatfield out in what North is it North Carolina? I think yeah, it's Dakota, North Dakota. You know, it's oh, one of the, yeah. It's, oh, you've moved. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah, you, well, you, it's it's as long as it's a North in the state. That's kind of like that's sort of a prerequisite for me. Yeah, Korea is okay. Exactly. That's, that's not a state. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody doesn't teach geography. Clearly. <laughs> well, we uh, were not on last week, but we're back this week stronger than ever with an amazing <laughs> guest with us once again. Or I should say, once again, we have an amazing guest. Uh, this is a first time for this particular guest. But I'll tell you what. If we get that whole last name sorted out, we'll be good. <laughs> Rick Beyer joins us. And Rick is a, uh, a historian, obviously, but. Uh, he is responsible for a book and a documentary on a, uh, a topic called the Ghost Army. Now, I've heard there's different ghost armies out there, but we're talking about World War II today. And I know that uh, World War II is a, a passion area for a number of us here on the podcast and for those of you listening to the podcast. So, Rick, thank you so much for joining us. I cannot wait to hear more stories about the 23rd special. I am really delighted to be here, and it, I think it's the pinnacle of my career so far. Oh, just, just you wait. <laughs> he is in for a letdown. It only goes down from here. We trust you. Well, that's what I'm expecting. So I'm just going to enjoy the hour, or however long it is, to you know have that pinnacle, and then after that, the void. Yeah. Well, right. Right. Just, just breathe in the glory, my friend. Just breathe in the glory. It's it's very intoxicating. Yes. Yes. Wow. Well, uh, all right. Well, Rick. Uh, obviously, um, we we know that you're an author, and we know that you are a film producer. But I, we're curious to know a little bit more about you and how you kind of came into the story of the Ghost Army or the Twenty Third Special Headquarters. Special Headquarters. Yeah, so I was born in a log cabin in ten. Oh, sorry, that's Davy Crockett. Uh, so uh, I I started my career as a journalist, and uh, I was a journalist for a while, and I was a, a radio uh, reporter and a radio uh, talk show producer, and then a TV news producer, and then I was in advertising for a while, uh, doing as a creative director, making commercials. But my interest has always been history. I've been interested in history since I was, you know knee-high to a grasshopper. And um, uh, my dad, who was a science professor, a physics professor at Brown, but he was also really interested in history. So I caught that bug. And it starting in about 1997, I got a chance to produce a series of history minutes for the History Channel. Oh, wow. 208 mm. history minutes with um, actor Sam Waterston. It was Ooh. called Time Lab 2000. 
And yes. and it was suddenly like, oh my goodness, I can <laughs> make money doing the thing that I love, or at least maybe I can. So that's kind of what got me out of advertising and started me down the road first towards documentary films and then towards um, you know writing books. And I wrote a series of books. Notice how I slipped the plug in here. <laughs> the Greatest Stories Never Told. So each book has a hundred kind of fascinating, weird, funky stories from history. Because that's kind of my wheelhouse is I love sort of the strange pieces of history that um, it's kind of unexpected. For example, and maybe you guys know this story because I know I'm, I'm, I have, uh, I have, you're all knowledgeable, how three cigars changed the course of the Civil War. Indeed. I do not know this story. I don't think I do either. Oh, I now I have to tell it. We'll get you to do. the Ghost Army. We'll get to the Ghost Army. But this is so uh, in 1862, when the Union, uh, um, uh, excuse me, the Confederacy under Robert E. Lee, they're invading the North. They are trying to win a victory that might uh, end the war in favor of the Confederacy. And the Union general at that time is uh, George McClellan, and he's like the most overcautious general to ever wear Union blue. And he's trying to find Robert E. Lee, and it's not going well. But um, one day the Union army is encamped, and uh, a soldier, a corporal named Barton W. Mitchell, looks down, and on the ground he sees three cigars wrapped in a piece of paper, which is awesome. Like if it was us, we could give one to to Hatfield and one to, you know, Jason and, and all the guys and, and share them. And, uh, and then he's about to throw away the piece of paper. He says, well, wait a minute, what's on this? And what it was, it was the marching orders to Robert E. Lee's army. Oh goodness. It's called special orders one nine one. And it said all the things where Lee was going and what they were planning. And they passed this up the line to general McClellan. And he says with this paper, you know, if I can't whip Bobby Lee, I'm willing to go home. And he launches, uh, not very well, but he launches the Union Army into action. And the result of this is the Battle of Antietam, mm -hmm. bloodiest single day in American history, um, which never would have happened except for three cigars. Wow. Right? Mm -hmm. So so this is kind of your, your man bites dog history story, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's something unusual. And so um, about 15, 16 years ago, um, uh, I was introduced to a woman whose uh, uh, uncle, was in the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, the unit that uh, we call the Ghost Army. And, uh, and she was on fire that someone should um, uh, make a documentary film about this. Uh, she, she had really only recently discovered kind of what her uncle did during the war. And when I met her at this coffee shop, um, she walked in carrying his notebooks from the war, all his scrapbooks and his sketches he had made in the war and photographs and all this stuff. And so... I mean, I got hooked because what is a what a what what this what a fascinatingly odd story. We're gonna take guys and we're gonna give them inflatable tanks and play sound effects and and do impersonation and all this trickery on the battlefield, you know, in the war zone near the front lines, in order to fool the enemy and hopefully save lives somewhere else. I mean, that is wild. So mm -hmm. I was hooked, and I'll be honest, I you know I fell <laughs> fell into the hole on this one, uh, and I'm still hooked. Sixteen years later. Well, um, quick question. Um, saying that you had go, you you're uh, a reporter at first, and then obviously you're uh, you love history, and this you know will lead you into eventually the topic that we're going to be talking about today. Um, is it? Is it more the pursuit of facts or is it the storytelling? What is it about um, 
is there something that you kind of feel like is more of the transportation for your ideas? Um, is it the is it the storytelling or is it the facts or is it like the uncovering new things? What was it that kind of led you down this path in terms of especially, you know, starting off in journalism? Well, I think that um, I have always been interested in, I, I think when I look back on my career, I think it's storytelling. Mm. I'm not sure that that's what I would have thought when I started my career. I, you know, junior year in high school, somebody asked me if I wanted to work on the student newspaper, and I said yes. Mm. And uh, and then I, somebody else suggested I work at the college radio station where I went to college, and I did that. And so in some ways, I fell into it, and I really mm. admired uh, Edward R. Murrow, you know, and, mm. and that whole thing. And I, and I came to see journalism as a very um, – noble calling uh, i mean there's always some issues sometimes but uh, and i still see it as a, a noble calling and i and i kind of view a lot of the history stuff that i do as sort of history journalism in a way you know it's mm. really mm. it's really they're they're two sides of the same coin to me one is dealing more with the present one is dealing with the past but many of the techniques are similar you know it's interviewing it's research it's getting the facts figuring out the story telling the story in a way that's compelling to people that they'll be interested in and so I think that's the thing that ties my whole career together is storytelling. Although I will also say I love research. I mean, I mm. think that the one of the best parts of any project is digging in and finding out the stuff and, um, right. um, you know, that, that somebody else doesn't know. And it's always so amazing to me that whatever the topic is, whatever topic you can, you know, find, if you start digging into it, you can come up with interesting stuff that's really surprising and that people don't know. Mm, sure. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, teaching teaching classes sometimes going down those little tran uh, those um, tangential sort of stories about various aspects can sometimes be uh, the hook that actually gets them into the right. main thing that you're trying to teach them. So yeah, right. It's, it's like a, the appetizer that uh, gets the activates the appetite a little bit. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, let's turn our attention towards the uh, ghost topic at hand or the army topic <laughs> at hand or however we want to say that. Um, so we've been using the term ghost army. The, the actual unit name is 23rd headquarters, special troops, as you mentioned, let's, can we get a, a quick kind of overview of what the mission of this unit was uh, mm -hmm. uh, during world war two? Yeah. Sure. And, and let me start out by saying that, you know, the phrase, the ghost army has been applied to different things and I'm not even talking about Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> But, but even to different things in World what? War II. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Hold on. What? We, we had this whole conversation. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm so I'm sorry. No, you're, I don't feel you are. I don't yeah, feel you are right. at all. You Hatfield, be nice. Hatfield. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the Ghost Army, uh, uh, a lot of times when, sometimes when I start to talk about this, people think I'm going to talk about there's a very famous D-Day deception. Mm -hmm. uh, in which the uh, uh, British are trying to fool the Germans about where the D-Day landings will take place. Mm -hmm. And people think, oh, is that's what he's talking about? That's the World War II deception. But this story, uh, in this case, the Ghost Army applying to the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, this was a unit of American unit of 1,100 soldiers. And their entire mission, the only their only purpose in World War II, was to uh, deceive the enemy on the battlefield. So not mm. like back in England when the war is taking place in France and elsewhere, but but on or near, you know, within usually within 
a range of a quarter mile to 10 miles uh, from the front line. And so why do we want to do this? You know, well, basically the idea is that uh, you're, cre you're creating surprise, right? So if you can make the enemy think that um, uh, everybody is in, you know, the American troops are in one spot and they're getting ready to launch an attack, when they're really 10 miles away, you're going to surprise the enemy. That's going to make your job easier in attacking them. It's going to save lives, save American lives. Honestly, it's probably going to save enemy lives as well because you're not going to have a grinding head-on attack. Mm -hmm. And so what they're doing is trying to deceive the enemy. They are essentially impersonating real and much larger American units. Mm -hmm. So you got 1,100 guys who are pretending to be, let's say, 20,000, a full division, roughly speaking. And to do this, they kind of go to war with um, – they're a multimedia deception unit. So they go <laughs> to war with, with visual. So that's inflatable inflatable tanks. Okay, I'll just say it. Right? <laughs> inflatable, the first bouncy houses. Right. Inflatable yeah. <laughs> tanks, inflatable trucks, jeeps, artillery, uh, airplanes – uh, anything a real infantry or armored division would have. And they had hundreds of these. They're using uh, half-tracks, um, which is a, a tracked uh, armored vehicle, with giant speakers on them and using sound effects to play the sounds of troops moving in, sounds of guys digging in, setting up camp, etc. They are doing all sorts of radio deception with uh, fake radio networks. And, and I think my favorite, everybody's got a different favorite, but I think my favorite is uh, something that they developed after they went into action in uh, northern Europe in uh, June 1944, which is called special effects. And essentially they <laughs> say, well, we're doing all this stuff to fool enemy reconnaissance. Or, but what if they've got spies around that they've left here when they evacuated? We better, we better actually impersonate this unit. We better have guys walking around with the patches of this unit. Maybe we need to have a fake headquarters. Maybe we need to have a fake general um, you know, who, who's wearing general stars and going around and, and inspecting, uh, you know, the <laughs> fake encampments and everything. Maybe we need to, you know, have, run trucks through the town every day that have the markings of that unit. So, so they develop these four different kinds of deception and they conduct more than 20 deceptions in uh, France, Germany, Luxembourg, uh, Belgium, in um, 1944 and 1945. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just this awesome story. <laughs> you really have to go like 100% in these sort of deceptions. I mean, you would think that it would be almost as easy just to get the unit there than <laughs> to create like, you know, all the inflatables. And, I mean, you think about all of it that it, that – it takes to not only design them, but put them together and transport them over there. And then, you know, the, the fake headquarters and all that kind of stuff. So that's, I mean, yeah, that's. Yeah. That's, but there's two things. And I mean, cause that's like, a, like a, there's this really serious response to that. Um, and um, because there's two things involved and one is that um, uh, there's a manpower shortage mm -hmm. in the U S army in world war two. And you right. wouldn't think so. Right. Cause there's millions of people serving in the army, but they never feel like they have enough. And they never feel like they have enough to like bring at a specific spot at a specific time. So one of the things that this unit does is it's what they call a force multiplier. It's uh, a thousand guys who can essentially the enemy will perceive as 
20,000, we'll say. So the enemy mm -hmm. may perceive a much larger unit. So it, it, it gives you, as long as the enemy doesn't figure out what you're doing or try to attack that unit, which obviously would be disastrous, it gives you uh, the, the ability to project more power in a certain place than you could otherwise because you don't really have as many troops as you'd like. And the second thing is it's actually really hard to move a division. It's really hard to move 20,000 guys and, you know, 400 tanks and, and trucks and all the uh, food that they need and all the equipment and finding water for them and all this stuff. And so the thing about this unit is they can kind of, relatively speaking, they can move on a dime, right? It's a whole lot easier right. if instead of uh, um, 400 tanks to drive down the road, you, you have 20 trucks, each of which has 20 <laughs> inflatable tanks in it. Right, yeah. Right, right? right. So, so it, gives you, it gives you capabilities. It gives you flexibility that, are, that a real unit, if they had infinite resources, you would never need a deception unit. But sure. they didn't have infinite resources. You mentioned uh, personnel shortages, and this kind of brings me to the next question that I had. Um, so the, the specific recruits for this, this, <laughs> this grouping of, of the army, are they soldiers or are they people that are more suited to work in like theater or, for lack of a better term, like special effects guys on movie sets? Well, both in a way. Um, I mean, first of all, keep in mind, as, as one of the soldiers in this unit said to me, John Jarvie, he said, it was a big war and everybody went. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like there's a whole lot of soldiers who have only been soldiers for for a year, right, or <laughs> right. two years or whatever. I mean, there's a whole lot of civilians. I, I, I don't have the number off at hand, but I think we had something like. Uh, 11 or 12 million people in the armed services. I mean, that's a big chunk of people that weren't in the army in 1939 who are by 1944. Sure. Um, when they created this unit, they did it in a real hurry. Uh, it really developed towards the end of 1943 and the beginning of 1944. And so to put the unit together, they couldn't really build it from scratch. So they took pre-existing units and kind of Frankensteined them together okay. uh, to create the Ghost Army. And one of those units was a camouflage unit. Well, that was a <laughs> unit in which they had uh, recruited a lot of artists. So you that's the unit that has like artists and designers, architects, stage designers, window dressers window dressing was a really big job area at that time because you had all these big department stores with fancy mm. window displays sure so you have that group of people but it's only about half the unit the other half is you know draftees or you know it's policemen farmhands store clerks uh bartenders the whole the whole range of people uh in in the sonic unit they had uh, a lot of people who were um uh, that they'd especially recruited who were sort of high IQ people because uh, uh, that one was put together from scratch. In the radio unit, there were, there were uh, they basically took, they traded out a bunch of the people that were in the pre-existing radio unit they grabbed and they brought in a lot of high-speed uh, telegraph operators. And some of them had been telegraph operators before the war and some of them were trained by the army. So you've got a mix of skilled people in certain areas and... Um, and people who are just, they're soldiers. They enlisted or they're drafted, but this is just where they ended up by the luck of the draw. Uh, and it's, one of the guys um, uh, said that um, in the barracks, uh, you know, you could hear uh, uh, 
Beethoven's Fifth on one end, like when they were training in Tennessee, and Pistol Pack and Mama on the other end. I mean, it's this really <laughs> wide range of people. You know, you've got artists from New York who go on to become fashion designers, and you've got, you know, guys, hmm. farmers from Illinois who go back and continue farming after the war. So it's really a, a great mix. It, it sounds like that's... Uh, kind of how they came up with, you know, everybody had their little niche and, and understandings. And when you mix that together, it seems like that would be a, a pretty good set of diverse minds to come up with all these different deceptions. Uh, any truth to that? Yeah, no, I think there is some truth to that. And I, especially if you, I think that really, really, really applies to the actual creation of the unit and the guys who dreamed it up. And mm. I'm sure that's somebody's question, but if I can answer it now, it fits right <laughs> into what you're saying. Yeah, go but ahead. Is that okay? I absolutely. Mean, yeah, absolutely. I don't want to get reprimanded for having... Oh, Hatfield's <laughs> the only one who would do that. the class, you know, oh. there's always that guy. Well, we've we like already the gone past the Lord of the Rings thing, so I, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's a little disappointing we couldn't spend more time on that. But um, <laughs> um, the two guys who dreamed up this unit are two staff officers, American staff officers, in and they're in England in uh, late 1944, and they're working essentially in the what's the Special Plans branch of the U.S. Army. There, there, it's an intelligence uh, branch, and they are. Um, uh, two guys, and one is named um, Ralph Ingersoll, and one is named Billy Harris. Okay. And Ralph Ingersoll is a major. And let me just go back and say, everybody in the unit, in the Ghost Army, in the 23rd, they are all in the U.S. Army. I mean, everybody's in the U.S. Army, whether right. they're you know lifelong soldiers or tr highly trained or artists or whatever, they're all in the Army. Mm -hmm. So, so you have these two guys who are uh, dreaming up this unit. Ralph Ingersoll is a civilian. He had been an author and a publisher. He's pretty famous. He had started a newspaper in New York called PM. He's very uh, left-wing uh, journalist, author, celebrity person, and uh, also very flamboyant. Had kind of a reputation also as an, uh, an egotist and uh, a bit of a liar. He was a, he was a smart liar, which is always good for deception. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and he is teamed up in, um, in, in this office, essentially. His boss is a, a colonel named Billy Harris, Lieutenant Colonel. And Billy Harris is a lifelong you know, army guy. And his father was an army officer, a West Point grad. Billy was a West Point grad. His brother was a West Point grad. Billy Harris goes on to become a general after the war. So it's two really different career tracks there. And they come together and they, they inspired by British deceptions in North Africa, they dream up the idea for this unit. And, um, you know, Ralph Ingersoll is kind of the pie in the sky. Uh, what if we did this? What if we did that guy? Mm -hmm. And Billy Harris is the, yeah, that's good, but let's change it to, so it'll work this with the army organization and we'll do this. So it'll be more effective. And, and together they develop the idea that becomes the 23rd headquarters special troops. And I think that's a real example of this kind of diverse thinking put together, then it becomes more effective than either of them would have been on their own. And I think in general that is does apply to the rest of the unit and what goes on after it's developed and goes into action. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, the engineer versus the person who's got to put the uh, the whatever it is together. The engineer can think it up and may not necessarily, <laughs> you know, think of all the you know. It just you get you get so many different angles, 
You know, it's like, well, that's great, but think about this. I don't know. know, Collaboration is very powerful. And collaborating with somebody who thinks differently than you and looks at things differently than you is very powerful if you can can pull it off. I mean, we live in a country right now where people don't even want to talk to people who think Mm -hmm. differently than them. But Mm -hmm. there is a power to it if you're willing to go there. Sure. Um, one quick question, since we're kind of uh, exploring the the you know the the, uh, the diversity, easy for me to say. Um, <laughs> what is what would you say would have been the hardest part of this entire process to emulate? Um, in this in, uh, in the in, in the deception process, because you were talking about the inflatable tanks, you're talking about you know driving the trucks through and all that kind of stuff. What do you think was probably the most complicated, I guess, to um, one piece of it to emulate? Well, I would say that in all cases, that attention to detail is really important. Mm. And I mean, in, in, in one sense, the most complicated to emulate, the most complicated part of it is, you know, the inflatables, because you've got to build all these inflatables mm-hmm. You got to design them. You got to build them. They're built at rubber factories across the U.S. You have to build them in a hurry. You have to ship them overseas. I mean, that's that's pretty complex. In terms of carrying out the mission, I think one of the most complicated things actually is what the radio deception guys did. Mm. So radio deception is really easy in concept. You say, okay, a a division or any army unit is going to have certain radio sets that they use to communicate because, oddly enough, they didn't bring their cell phones. (laughs) <laughs> and so um, they're going to be using this radio and they're doing most of this by Morse code. Okay. And so if we can just have a radio network and then we know the Germans are listening in and even if all the messages are coded, they can figure things out from, from the, what they call traffic analysis. So, so you would think that's pretty simple to replicate the radio network, let's say of the sixth armor division, except here's the rub. The Germans are so sophisticated in their listening skills that they can identify individual American telegraph operators. So, you know, telegraph, we're talking <laughs> Morse code, right? And so the Ghost Army guys had to be able to imitate the Ghost Army radio guys had to be able to imitate the real radio operators, impersonate oh, wow. their telegraph sending style. Now, mm. there were, are people who will tell you that this cannot be done, that, that the sending style is like a fingerprint. It cannot be imitated. Mm-hmm. But that's not true, or at least uh, the Ghost Army was I- good enough at imitating it that it was able to fool the Germans, which, and, and they were very good at, at, uh, at this radio intelligence. So if you, now if you think about it, if we need to be able to impersonate the, uh, German, the other American radio operator, uh, well, first of all, you need to be able to send as fast as that guy, right? So you need, mm-hmm. your radio operators need to be the fastest radio operators in the whole army because they have to be able to send as fast as anybody that they might be imitating. And then they have to learn that style and they have to send that style. So that is a complicated thing to do. And a, a great illustration, I think, of how important uh, attention to detail is when you're, when you're trying to um, deceive somebody. I mean, I don't like to give lessons in lying and deception to people, but <laughs> if I was to do so, I would say pay attention to the details because that's what will slip you up. 
Oh, sure. And I, mm. I use that phrase all the time. As you guys all know, yeah, your I mean, lying and deception careers. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I, what we, I'm, like, we like to just think of it as indoctrination. That's really right. cool. Oh, jeez. Or yeah, teaching. He, oh, he, he went there. Yeah. Oh, I did. I did. I did. Okay. There, wow. it's, it's important. Um, <laughs> yeah, come on. Join the team. Come on. But anyway, um, what I'm, I'm curious, so we know that the Germans were deceived, but like what evidence was there to kind of confirm just how how effective uh, the uh, the ghost army was at carrying out deception? So the evidence is 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 hard to come by. It's a, and 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 there's some clear evidence, but there's other deceptions where there's not a lot of clear evidence. Um, you know, we have, for example, in the last deception they did, which is Operation Viersen, which was their biggest and probably their most successful deception in which they impersonated two divisions. That's essentially 40,000 soldiers uh, uh, crossing the Rhine and making it seem like they were about to cross the Rhine River in one place, uh, the 30th and 79th divisions, when they were actually going to cross 10 miles away. And we know that there are captured German maps that that showed uh, at least one of those divisions where we wanted the enemy to think they're where they think they were um and we know in uh, another division that the de deception excuse me that they did uh, operation breast earlier in the war um that where they were impersonating the sixth armored division we know from interrogations afterwards that the germans thought the sixth armored division was there <laughs> there's other uh deceptions where the the evidence is sort of uh, what i would say is kind of negative evidence it's what didn't happen sure. right so there's uh, a deception they do in September 1944 called Operation Bettenberg, which is one of my favorite uh, operations. And it happens right along the Moselle River on the Luxembourg-German border and part of the French-German border. And they are basically filling a hole in George Patton's line. Mm. And they are because Patton's attacking... Mm -hmm. The French city of Metz, which is to the south, there's this 25-mile gap in his line. If the Germans realize it's there, they could go in and get behind Patton. And the Ghost Army, I mean, fills this this uh, this 25-mile gap, and they're supposed to do it for three days, and then they can't get the real division there that they want to get there, and so they end up having to do it for seven or eight days. Oh, jeez. And yeah, and it's and I mean, so so it's wow. negative evidence. It's like what didn't happen. The Germans didn't figure out there was uh, a hole there. They didn't uh, come and invade and get behind Patton, which they were very good at doing if they could have, if they saw the opportunity. So, you know, obviously negative evidence isn't as strong as like if we could find something in the German records that said we know we on this date we saw the sixth armored division here and it was really the ghost army mm. and there's there isn't i i haven't found a ton of that um uh, and i think there's more research to be done in the german records what what i do know and what is fairly clear is that they they the germans never figured out there might have been a couple of deceptions where they weren't completely buying the picture we were selling them mm -hmm. but there were none that they said well wait a minute this is there's this deception unit out there that they're trying to play a trick on us. They never, they never quite got that far. So we, we know that they didn't find out about the ghost army, which is really good because if they had, um, they could have really used that to their advantage and sort of turned it around. Right. So if you sure. know, if you can recognize where the deception unit is, then, you know, if you see the deception unit, you know that there's no real American troops there. And so that's where you should 
attack, and that that never happened. Um, there was I, I, I'm, I'm drawing off of the documentary, uh, The Ghost Army, which uh, I believe was put out uh, as part of a PBS series or with PBS. Yeah, it was uh, came out on PBS. It premiered in 2013, and it is available on Amazon Prime. Out, yes, yeah, that's where I watched it last night. Yeah. So I know there was one time where they they did a deception, and it sounded like I forget which which operation it was. They did a deception. It was very successful. They drew the the Germans to where they wanted them, and then the U.S. launched the attack in the wrong spot and basically ran them right into where the Germans had yeah. reinforced. Can you kind of tell the story about that? Yeah, so that is Operation Brest, uh, and which I had mentioned a little bit earlier, and they did a very successful deception. Uh, Brest is a port city. The Germans held the port city. Uh, the Americans basically had them surrounded on land, but they were trying to, to, to take the port. Uh, and the idea of using the Ghost Army was they were going to make it appear like there were uh, more troops on the flanks so that the enemy would prepare for troops on the left flank and the right flank, and then the real American attack would come in the center. But uh, the deception was highly successful. They succeeded in fooling the Germans and making them think that elements of, uh, of the 6th Armored Division were there. But the... Um, there was a miscommunication or or maybe there maybe it was a it's not quite clear if it's a miscommunication or sort of a a, a disbelief in the power of deception but uh, an american tank commander launched a tank attack as part of this overall attack right from the spot where one of the ghost army uh deceptions was taking place so essentially the ghost army um in this town north of brest had attracted German attention to this area of this, these farm fields. Uh, the Germans had zeroed in their 88s on this area, thinking an attack was going to be launched from there. When, in fact, a real attack was launched from that area, they opened up with the 88s, and they just blasted the, the tanks that were launched from there. And it really hmm. shook up a lot of guys. I, I talked to a bunch of guys uh, in the Ghost Army. They um, Many of them remembered this and were unhappy about it, feeling like, we did our job you know we did what we were supposed to do and it and it went horribly wrong because of what somebody else did mm -hmm. uh the person who wrote their official wow. history wrote about it other other guys in the unit wrote about it in their you know in, in stuff that they wrote after the war so it had a big impact on them and it was a small scale i mean we're not talking like hundreds of people killed or something it was a it was a sort of a small scale attack it was a um you know ultimately not a huge disaster for the americans but it also really i think um um the the operations officers and the other high-ranking officers in the unit took this as you know we need to make sure that this doesn't happen again and we need to use this as an example and we need to improve our communications with the real units and i think right. that's another thing that's just really important about the deception story if you're if you're you, know, you can have a lot of fun with this story, but when you get serious about it, it's really important to communicate. You can't just say, hey, we're going to put up the inflatable tanks and maybe the Germans will attack us. You have to really coordinate with the real units and integrate what you're doing into the real actions for it to be effective and be life-saving. Sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so, I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about some of the different campaigns that they were involved in. I mean, and I guess I want to go D-Day just a little bit. Only because it's, I would, I would say it's the most well-known campaign that that launch into, into France. Um, you know, we know that the Ghost Army wasn't part of the deception, 
in the pre-D-Day uh, activities, um, but were they involved in that that uh, thrust into France? And if so, what what was their role in, in a lot of that? Yeah, so so interesting, and I've been I've been doing some research into this and trying to uncover more about it. Um, so there's a couple of layers to my answer to your story. The first is that there was a group of about 20 uh, radio operators who were actually part of the D-Day invasion. They were supposed to do a radio deception. It was involved in trying to draw German attention away from where the uh, uh, the paratroopers were going to be landing. Mm. And so this mm. was a plan to, to do a deception uh, on the night of uh, June 6th, I think, um, uh, and, and into June 7th. And they were loaded up on ship and everything, and then they canceled. They changed the drop zones, and they changed the plan, and so they no longer were going to do this deception. But they decided to put these guys on the ships anyway, and uh, and send them over because it was they'd already they were in the the whole secure area, and they, it was easier to send them off than to, <laughs> than to not. And so they end up on the uh, um, you know I think uh, Omaha Beach on. Um, uh, D plus one or D plus two, and um, they don't have a deception to do. But it turns out at the same time that the 82nd Airborne, that almost all of their radio sets have been destroyed in their dropping and in the fighting that's been going on. So a bunch of these guys end up uh, working as radio, uh, doing the radio work for the 82nd um, Division, the you know, parachute division. Um, uh, uh, until, you know, for like a week or 10 days after D-Day. Oh, wow. So that's kind of an interesting, like, these guys weren't, you, you don't think of them as being the soldiers who are fighting the battles, but there's actually a real close correlation between, you know, between those radio operators and the and the 82nd, because they really were in the 82nd for a week. It's as if they wow. were in the, the unit. So that's, and, and then eventually they, um, they withdraw from there, and then eventually as the other parts of the Ghost Army, uh, uh, land in France, they, they kind of reunite to be a unit altogether. There's also some other soldiers who were, um, by their telling, who were there on D-Day and that I can't quite figure out what they were doing there and they don't remember enough to quite be able to answer me, but I don't disbelieve them, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, sometimes people will tell you things, they conflate things, they'll tell you things that aren't true. But there's two or three other soldiers, not part of this radio unit, who have quite detailed experience, stories of their, you know, D plus one, D plus two experiences, leading me to believe that there's maybe some other stuff that I, I still don't know about yet or wasn't oh. written up. Or and sometimes guys in this unit, I think, got, uh, they were, because they reported directly to the, to the, um, uh, what eventually became the 12th U.S. Army Group under Omar Bradley. They were outside of the regular chain of command, so they were kind of like available to be grabbed for other things once in a while. Sure. So you have those two hmm. things. And then the last thing is that um, eight days after D-Day, uh, and this is probably what you were getting at in the, uh, and you're asking about the question, uh, uh, they decided to, on short notice, to fly in uh, a platoon of soldiers to do a, uh, a deception with inflatable artillery. They wanted to draw German artillery fire away from real American artillery. And this was kind of the first acid test of using dummies in the, um, 
in the in the field, right in battle. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I was commanded by uh, a lieutenant named Bernie Mason, who I came to know really well, who passed away uh, last year. And um, and they fly over and they land on the metal mesh airstrip behind Omaha Beach, and they get their um, they set up their uh, inflatables, and they're trying to draw fire away from the I think it was the 980th Artillery Division artillery battalion and they succeed at this and they do this for almost four weeks and they didn't take any casualties but they did get a fair amount of incoming fire to their position which is fire that could have been uh, incoming to the real artillery position and wasn't and this was the um, really the first demonstration that these inflatables would work and there's a great story that Bernie told and I couldn't get it in the documentary I couldn't fit it mm -hmm. but uh, you might like hearing it mm -hmm. which is you know they have of course whenever you're doing something like this you have a security perimeter and um, you know they've set up this this fake uh, artillery battalion and and they had these flash canisters they used so that they would go off simultaneously with the real artillery so it's not just um, inflatable guns it's inflatable guns with that flash at the same time that the real guns flash <laughs> anyway um, a Life magazine reporter shows up because he thinks this is a real artillery emplacement and he's looking for a story and he wants to like interview people. And Bernie's like, you can't come in here. He's like, no, you don't understand. I'm a, you know, credited journalist. You could be in Life magazine. Nope. Not interested. <laughs> you know, get out of here. <laughs> and, uh, and he sends him off. So years later, like, like I'm talking 70 years later, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, uh, Life magazine did a thing on the ghost army and I supplied all the pictures to it. I made sure there was a picture of Bernie and his platoon. Nah. <laughs> I said, Bernie, you finally got into life. <laughs> That's awesome. That is great. great. <laughs> uh, I wonder if the, I, I, I'm sure there's no way to know if the, the author ever found out what was really going on. Yeah. No, no, yeah. no idea. No way. <laughs> But you know there was a I mean one of the one of the aspects of the story that that is uh, kind of um, makes for some interesting moments is that they they weren't supposed to tell anybody what they're doing mm -hmm. right. right I mean just natural operational security yeah you know you don't want to go well what are you guys doing well we're in the fake unit you know First of all, <laughs> First of all, this is not really a good way to earn the trust of other people. Mm -hmm. And secondly, yeah. you know, um, if it's a good story, it would spread and it would it would destroy your operational security. So frequently they're in positions where they're having to lie to other uh, American soldiers about who they are or what unit they're in, uh, what's going on. And it led to some uncomfortable times. Uh, hmm. And, um, you know, there's a bunch of stories about that. But one is... Um, told by dick syracuse and he was uh, i think he was in luxembourg city um and he ran into somebody he knew um at like an officer's club or something in luxembourg city i mean this is like not in the midst of battle right but this mm -hmm. is in a in a in a moment where where there's not a whole lot going on where they are and this guy says to him he says syracuse he says i see you're in the you're in the you know, sixth armored division now, you know, didn't you used to be in the 75th infantry? And then I heard, you know, and I saw you earlier and you were at the, uh, you know, the uh, 26th because he'd have the different patches on for the different deceptions. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he's, he's and, and Syracuse is, well, yeah, you know, I, I kind of screwed up and they keep transferring me around and the guy's like, Hey, you better like fly right buddy. Or they're going to send you to the front lines. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Um, but they all, I mean, there were tons of stories about that and, and, um, but it is, a, and it, it was uncomfortable, uh, you know, and there was a, during the battle of the bulge, 
They were pretending to be the 75th Infantry Division, um, which wasn't there yet. Mm. And the, the, <laughs> the troops on the 4th Division was to the south of them. And when the, and the Ghost Army guys actually pulled out the night before the, the Germans attacked. It was kind of lucky. It was a coincidence. But the guys in the 4th Division, I mean, they thought the 75th Infantry Division was there. And, uh, and they, are, they were pretty pissed at the 75th for not, you know, being there on their flank. And, uh, um, you know, one of the guys supposedly said in the field hospital, you know, I'd like to get my hands in one of those elusive bastards of the 75th. So give him a piece <laughs> of my mind over that. So, I mean, you know, it's funny, but it's also like, you know, you, 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 it, it's a, it's, it can be a bit awkward, uh, you know, it can be a problem too. Um, when, oh, when did, when did this actually come into light? When was like, cause I, I would imagine that this would be needing to be hush hush because for the, uh, for the secrecy and for the success uh, of the unit, when was this, when did this all come to light? When was this released to the public? Like, well, that's a more complicated question than you might think <laughs> so i'll start out with the easy answer which is okay. 1996 96 yeah so it was the wow. official the official history and other documents were classified until 1996 and wow. and the first books i did not uh write i did not discover the ghost army the first books about it came out a few years later there was a book by john gone called Ghosts of the ETO and John's in my film <laughs> and there were a couple of other books um, and so that's when the story came out now having said that I'm going to poke holes in that <laughs> and I'll start with this because secrecy is an interesting thing I'll start with this if you google the ghost army in the New York Times archives you will find an article from November 1945 you know ghost army fools enemy in neatest trick of the war Something Holy like wow. that. And there's an article in the New York Times. There were other articles because what had happened, long story, but the short version is, is that a ghost army soldier had told the story to his hometown newspaper. And mm. after the war was over and the censorship office closed, they printed it. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Right. Yeah. So, right. so there was a burst of stories in 1945. Uh, but then the Pentagon managed to get it hushed up and all the papers were classified. And there was an officer in the Ghost Army, actually the guy who wrote the official history, the official U.S. Army history, which was classified, who named Fred Fox, who worked for the Eisenhower White House, who tried to get it declassified and the Army wouldn't do it. Um, tried a couple of times uh, and they wouldn't do it because they really wanted to keep it secret. But there were still a story here and a story there over the years. And then I think the most substantial story that came out um, was in 1986, so still before it was declassified, when the Smithsonian Magazine did a story about it uh, because they'd heard, um, they'd learned about it from an, uh, an illustrator named Arthur Shillstone who'd been in the unit. And in all of these cases, I mean, the, the, the Army didn't try to sue anybody or put anybody in jail or anything like that. Um, right. But they didn't release all the um, they didn't release all the, the documents either. And you know, I think that one of the things when when we talk about secrecy, I always say to people is the army probably didn't really care if you knew that they used inflatable tanks at some point or that <laughs> they used some other deception. What they would care about is the detailed information about where and when that happened. 
Right. Because that right. would that would enable an enemy if if you're still trying to preserve that technique, let's say, uh, that would enable an enemy to study how you did it. Sure. And sure. the fact the way that they used all these different types of deception combined to feed the enemy uh, a false story, details of a false false story. And they would learn your they would kind of learn your technique. They, it's like it's like it's like a, a magician it, knowing that the magician does this trick isn't going to help you. But if you knew all the details of the trick, then you could figure it out. Sure. So um, that makes sense. Yeah. So but but it really wasn't widely known until um the late 90s and i would argue it's still not widely known you know mm -hmm. even i mean in spite of the documentary and the uh the book that i wrote with elizabeth sales and the other books and uh other things that we've done to publicize it i still run into people all the time who are like oh my god i never heard about that that's amazing so mm. yeah it, it and it it's uh it's such a good story. I'm sorry. I'm still like, <laughs> this is just, this is fun. I'm 16 years in and I'm still saying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and so like, and, and that was one of the things I wanted to ask about was about being classified till 96. And that's a wonderful, like, thank you so much for the answer on that because that makes so much sense. And then, you know, the fact that I suppose it would slip a little bit here and there. Um, you know, there's still things that are classified about it. Oh, I believe wow. there's still stuff I haven't been able to get. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So, I, I mean, mean, who knows? So these guys obviously were really, really good at what they were doing. And, and you were saying that they were taking on taking fire. I'm curious to know how off you know, kind of I, I want to get to that whole being under fire with stuff that doesn't shoot back. And how do you <laughs> how do you not get obliterated? And you're like, how were there any of them left? If they're taking so much fire, well, first of all, they're very lucky. Okay. I mean, I, I, there, there's really no other way to view this to say that they are very lucky. They could have suffered far worse casualties. They expected to mm -hmm. uh, than they did. Um, I think over the course of the nine months that they were in Europe, uh, they had four guys killed. Um, they had two to three dozen who were reasonably seriously wounded. I mean, requiring hospitalization. Mm -hmm. wow. um, and so they did, you know, obviously, and, and, and most of this is from artillery fire. I mean, they didn't, they didn't ever get in a, except for one incident, they didn't really get in a shooting, you know, back and forth battle with German troops. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I would say, you know, uh, the, the advantage that you have when you're the deception unit is you're a, a much smaller number of people in any given spot. Uh, and so if you're dug in, uh, you, you could be in pretty good shape to withstand the artillery fire, mm -hmm. the decoys. If you're working with uh, decoy tanks, they are, they're not actually like giant balloons. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're built on a frame of a skeleton, I guess is a better word of inflatable tubing that's very segmented with a lot of different inflation points. And then it's got a kind of a cover that you put over it that looks like the skin of a tank. Mm -hmm. And um, so so if it's hit with shrapnel or something in one spot, it's not going to like blow up like a balloon and... And so uh, and so you could repair them and and, uh, and and so they could still be effective uh, as as um, as dummy tanks. Uh, but but they were pretty lucky. And, um, you know, they were they were used, you know, Obviously, they tried to use them in circumstances where they didn't think they were going to come under heavy fire. Sure. And they did a number of operations. I mean, of the 20 
it depends on how you count their number of operations and which things you, you count, but it's about 22 operations in Northern Europe. And there are some of them where they're, where they're not right up at the front, right? And there's, a, there's other ones when they are very close to the front. And obviously the ones where they're, where they're close and the ones as they're pushing more and more into Germany, are, are they, that's really where they took casualties. I mean, they took casualties during the Battle of the Bulge. Um, they took casualties during uh, Operation Buzanville in March of '45. That's when a couple of guys were killed, um, and and uh, and yeah, it was. Um, it's surprising to me that that more people didn't get killed in the course of this. So um, I don't have a great answer except to say they were lucky, and you know that their density of of troops in any given spot is less, which uh, means less people there to be killed. Good point. Yeah. Did they did they have more offensive capabilities in those particular cases? I mean to no, they had no. Uh, basically they had their sidearms, uh, which which by which I would mean you know most of the soldiers carried a carbine, which is lighter than an M1 because you had to have it with you at all times, and mm -hmm. if you you got all this work to do setting stuff up or playing sound sure. effects or doing stuff, you you maybe aren't going to want to lug around an M1 all the time. Right. Um, they had a few 50 cal machine guns. Um, they. I, I, they may have had one bazooka. <laughs> there's, there's a rumor that there was a bazooka that they didn't uh, let go of, or that they, they, uh, they kept their hands on. But it's that, that is none of that's going to do any good um, if one enemy tank shows up, right, right, gunning for you. So you know, it's always struck me, and the guys in the unit would say uh, they kind of dismiss this when I say it. But it's always struck me that it's, it's, there's a certain form of courage in being willing to be out there with basically no ability to fight back, mm -hmm. right? And so it's different. It's not the same as uh, the guys who are jumping out of a, out of a ditch to, to uh, attack a German bunker or something like that. I mean, it has a very different kind of courage. And, I, and those guys are the, the frontline dog face uh, uh, infantry. Those guys are amazing and deserve every, every drop of our respect and, and credit. But there's also something to me about being willing to go out there and do this job at night near the front lines and you're playing sound effects or you're inflating fake tanks or whatever you're doing and wondering if um, suddenly the enemy shows up. You know, it's, it's going to be a really difficult situation. It's going to be uh, life-threatening. And that's always uh, is something that impressed me a lot. Sure. So when they're, when they're out in the field doing this, I mean – you can't control where everybody else in the world is. Uh, were there ever times where, and it sounds like the, the Germans didn't discover them, but were there times where like other people would see things and like, what in the world is going on there? And you know, that could have outed them or, or, or something along those lines. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, there's a very, it's a story in the film <laughs> and uh, uh, you may know where I'm going with this, uh, where they're setting up uh, their inflatables and they have a security perimeter around, uh, but somehow uh, a couple of Frenchmen got through the security perimeter, uh, <laughs> badly set up. I think it was early on in their time in France. And then the, the guy there on guard duty, uh, Arthur Shillstone, he's got a he's got a his job is to shoo these guys away, get these guys out of there. And and as Arthur tells the story, he says, uh, um, you know, they're not looking at me; they're looking over my shoulder. And what they thought they saw was four GIs lifting a 40-ton Sherman tank and moving it across the road. <laughs> and they're looking at me, and they're looking for answers. And finally, I said, 
this is Arthur. The Americans are very strong. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I imagine they very promptly uh, also read those guys, the riot act and said, you know, shut the F up. If you, <laughs> yeah, wanna, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to go into a little uh, stockade here for a while. Right. But, uh, um, there were a few instances where, where civilians saw things um, and, um, uh, and that could be a problem. And, there were also, as we talked about before, there's instances where where they're kind of put on the spot by people. Um, uh, in in uh, another a story that doesn't make it into the film, uh, actually, I think it's in our I think it's in the longer version of our film. I don't think it's in the shorter version. But but uh, um, uh, a guy named Jack McGlynn is he's a sergeant and he's leading a a, a convoy of trucks that are supposed to be from the 90th Infantry Division. And they come to an MP checkpoint, and by a mistake, by kind of a screw up, it's actually a checkpoint from the real 90th Infantry Division. And and this this happens during Whoops. the Battle of the Bulge when the Germans are infiltrating the American lines with German guys dressed up in American uniforms. Very famous, you know, thing that goes on. And everybody's like super heightened security, and they're alert, and they're they're trigger happy. And so they come into this checkpoint and of course the 90th division MPs don't recognize any of these guys. They look pretty sketchy. And so, <laughs> so he says to Jack McGlynn, he says, uh, he says, well, what's the password? And Jack says, I don't know the password. And he says, well, what's last month's password? And he says, I don't know last month's password. And now the, the MP, well, he thinks I got one. I got one of those Germans and he's <laughs> unslinging his, you know, Tommy gun or whatever and beckoning the other MP over. And now he's going to, you've seen this in the movies, right? Now he's going to quiz him. Mm -hmm. You know, they would, they would always like, who won the 1942 World Series or something? <laughs> but he says to Jack McGlynn, he says, where are you from? And Jack says, Boston. He says, yeah, Boston's a big place. Where? And Jack says, Medford, which is a town outside of Boston. And then the guy absolutely shocked him unbelievably. He said, oh, yeah? Well, what's the name of the school on Harvard Street? So out of two million soldiers in the European Theater of Operations, he ran into another guy from Medford. <laughs> <laughs> and he knew the name of the school on Harvard Street. And uh, he always said that's what saved his life. But Jack, Jack McGlynn went on to become the mayor of Medford. <laughs> and they named a school after him. And I've always been upset that it wasn't that school. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still irritated about this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, uh, the first thing that I'm thinking of is if these were like artistic types with this kind of stuff, asking them about sports probably would not have helped them anyway. <laughs> Like, I don't watch. I don't watch. Uh, yeah, football, and a, right, you know? right. And of course, they weren't all artistic types. But there's another story, uh, and it's not specifically the Ghost Army. But you might remember I mentioned Ralph Ingersoll. If you were awake mm -hmm. during that portion of the interview, I, oh, I was. Um, I was. So about 20 minutes ago, and um, and he was a major, and he was, uh, you know, and he was in the special plans branch, and he was kind of one of the guys who co also, in addition to dreaming up the. You know, coordinated these missions, right? Coordinated them with the real army units and gave them their orders to what to do and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's caught out uh, during the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, you know, he's up, uh, up front. Um, and he gets a, a message, like a, um, like a highly classified message. Um, or it wasn't, yeah, sorry, it wasn't Ingersoll. It was another officer um, named Went Eldridge, but who worked with Ingersoll. Sorry, I blew my own story. But he gets a message <laughs> 
um, you, you know, and, and they decode it, and it's a especially important message. And it's his girlfriend who later became his wife, and she's she's back in England, and she's also in the kind of secret establishment. She's sending him the name of like who won the last World Series because she knows that he's not going to know it. And she's scared <laughs> that he's going to get killed out there for not knowing that, so she sends it to him like by secret, you know, radio, etc. And uh, and I just I always thought that was hysterical. And she was British. I mean, so she didn't know, but she knew that he didn't know. So she sure had that. That's great. Actually, very interesting. This guy went to Eldridge, so he was also with the with the special plans branch coordinating these uh, deceptions. And his wife was with the SOE. His later, he became his wife. His girlfriend was with the SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which was a British spy and sabotage agency. So they were quite the couple. Quite oh the couple. yeah. Hmm. Oh, without yeah. a doubt. Uh I know. I'm sorry. I no. took you down so many rabbit holes. You know, no, I no, love no, no, this. No, my life. The thing is that we could go on for six hours, and I could still take you down all those. I know. Holes. No, I was trying to see if I could work in a Hogan's Heroes reference, but I don't think I can. Mm. <laughs> oh, but, um, okay, <laughs> leave that to me. Okay. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Jeez. Oh. I, I I could do my Sergeant Schultz imitation. But <laughs> I am convinced. I am totally convinced that somebody in the creative team of Hogan's Heroes knew about this unit. And that, they, you know, obviously they give it the twist of happening in the POW camp. But there's too many things that happen in Hogan's Heroes that feel like they're right out of what this unit did. Really? Huh. And now I have absolutely no proof. But, but I can tell you that at that time, which is what, 1966, I think, yep. around then, even though this story is still classified, there's somebody who has written a movie script that they're trying to make about the 23rd in 1966. Huh. It's actually the, the guy who wrote the screenplay is named Max Schulman. He created Dobie Gillis. I don't know if you're old enough to remember yeah, yeah. Dobie Gillis, which was the big uh, 50s uh, TV show starring Bob Denver. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, he wrote a, a screenplay. So my theory is they never produced that screenplay, but my theory is that somehow somebody saw that screenplay and said, Oh, maybe we can steal this idea to make a TV show, but let's change it and we'll do something to make it different. And so we'll make it that they're, Oh, they're in a prison camp, but they're huh. doing all these fake things. And I, I, I'm, I'm convinced <laughs> that one day if the history bros can just investigate this, <laughs> we will find that connection and that will be awesome. Well, well, uh, Hatfield, you're, you're, you're in the movies. I think that's our mission statement now. I think that's, that's our goal. Change that's the website, mean. baby. Put the mission <laughs> so, statement up there. So I have a, um, um, of course, I, I always tend to draw everything into uh, Japanese history. And oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. So uh. were, were there, do you know, were there any plans um, to possibly try and use these, um, use this unit or use the tactics uh, for that inevitable uh, invasion of Japan or island hopping campaigns and things like that. So, yeah, there was a definite plan. Um, oh, don't feed the monster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so no, sorry. There, Go ahead. Rude. No, the, no the adults plan. are talking. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, absolutely. So the when the 23rd uh, completed, uh, you know, uh, their mission in Europe, uh, and you have uh, VE Day in May, and mm -hmm. and they they spent a couple of weeks there uh, manning some um, 
um, displaced persons camps, and then they ship back to the U.S. And the plan is that they are going to be refitted, completely refitted with new equipment, and that they're going to go out and be part of Operation Downfall, the invasion of Japan. Mm -hmm. And um, just imagine their excitement. Uh, (laughs) Great news. We're going to get to go to Japan. And so um, uh, that was the plan. And they were going to be there under MacArthur for that invasion. And they were then, uh, you know, obviously the atomic bomb was dropped. And there were, I mean, whatever you think about that, there were no set of happier people than the people who were in the ghost army, that they were not going to have to go be part of the invasion of Japan because I think they did not feel their luck was going to keep hanging on the way it had, the way it had hung mm, on. Sure. Um, I don't know of any deceptions that went on that were kind of ground deceptions in the island hopping parts of the uh, campaign. And as you can imagine, that would probably not be terribly effective mm-hmm. uh, since a lot of that stuff is we're, in, we're coming in across a beach, um, you know, stuff like that. Um, I mean, you, you might be able to try to fake a landing someplace else, but I'm not aware of anything there. There are some Navy deceptions that go on don't know a great deal about them and there's probably more research to be done there but there are some deceptions where they're trying to make it seem like there's a navy fleet in one place where it's really someplace else i mean Mm -hmm. the japanese do some of that as well but Mm -hmm. uh that is not it is uh it is far from the area that i know a lot about okay but they yeah so that was well i i figured that they would probably be trying to or at least planning on uh, using them because I know. Well, the thing were... is, deception is a really useful military tool, and any sure. general worth his or her salt is going to want to employ that. The problem, from the point of view of the people who work on deception in the U.S. Army, is that uh, you know between wars, it's not the area that anybody's going to you know particularly cares about. It only it's one of those things that only really becomes important when you're actually in a fighting war and suddenly you you have a need for these things that maybe you haven't developed or haven't paid that much respect to between wars. And I mean one of the things I think is good about the US Army right now is after a long time of having kind of ignored the 23rd, they've sort of rediscovered it. And the U.S. Army uh, uh, Intelligence School in Arizona, the PSYOPs troops uh, at Fort Bragg and elsewhere have really embraced the story and are inspired by the story. Uh, Some of those guys have um, sort of unofficial morale patches with the Ghost Army insignia on it. They've they've come to our events. They've really enjoyed interacting with (laughs) veterans of the unit. And they really consider themselves the... um, uh, I, I've presented uh, to to the, those guys, and other people have presented to them about this unit. They really consider uh, themselves as sort of the the next generation of the Ghost Army. Do they do they use like an actual like I know like um, Desert Storm? They um, they basically, if I'm correct, if my history, uh, if my memory serves, they did try to uh, fake a landing um, to draw some Iraqi forces away, and then they were able to to come in elsewhere, if I'm correct. I think I've got Yeah, no, I think that's right, and I think they also used some inflatables uh, at one yeah. point with, uh, <laughs> well, with radar transponders in them so that they gave off a signal that, that you, know, they would, you know, they would show up on radar as if they were a real tank. 
Oh, so I mean, they really did use inflatables. Yes, in, yeah, 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 yeah. Because I was they aware did. that they were, I think, using like special ops, like you know, I think seals and stuff like that to to help kind of. But I think it, I think it was wing. the Marines. I think the Marines used some inflatables uh, at one point, as I say, with radar transponders in them, and that, huh. I mean, wow. that's the last. Wow. That's the last time I'm aware that the Americans used that. Um, I mean, I think deception in the 21st century for the military is probably more about. Um, uh, social media uh, about mm -hmm. uh, different sorts of um, you know like like I mean TikTok or, or uh, <laughs> right yeah well, I mean just I would say imagine that you wanna um, imagine that suddenly TikTok or or I don't know Twitter or any of these services uh, is filled with messages of people uh, in the area of Fort Bragg just mm -hmm. to pick one saying oh mm -hmm. you know uh, um, Hope I'm back soon. You know, I'm gonna miss my family. Uh, you know, packed my packed my summer clothes. You know, just stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I can't believe my husband's you know, deploying again or whatever. That you you know, your our enemies are looking at that kind of thing. And so those are kind of the channels that you might use today, uh, in a, in a sort of a long range way. But I think I think you know, there's a lot of electronic and media and and other stuff like that involved in deception far more than the physical elements that you know mm. i don't think mm. inflatable tanks even with radar transponders are probably going to be as effective today but listen i think there's a lot of military you know forces that have them mm -hmm. i don't think that inflatables and, and there are extremely um you can google this uh there's like a factory in russia that makes extremely realistic looking inflatable armored vehicles and airplanes mm. and somebody's buying them yeah somebody <laughs> Somebody's buying them and, and finding a use for them. So, uh, you know, I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff going on there that we only, you know, don't even know anything about. Good yeah. point. Very good. I'm point. not sure how many uh, needs there would be for inflatable T-72s at this point. But uh, <laughs> anything's, anything's yeah, possible. Yeah, not so much. Um, but I mean, also, I mean, but you think about it, if you're a, a dictator someplace and you're having the big parade with all of your military equipment, maybe mm, some of that go. isn't real military equipment. Oh, right? yeah. there you go. You're taking a, a you're staging a photo. I mean, you can use Photoshop now to yeah. do stuff, but you can do all sorts of things that are um, that might seem real from a distance and aren't really. And, uh, hmm. you know, so I, I, I think there's still a lot of deception going on. And I think smart military uh uh, really tries to embrace deception and figure out um, how they can integrate that into scenarios that might pop up on their radar. Sure. What uh, what became of some of these guys? Like, I know there's a number of Ghost Army uh, soldiers that were interviewed, uh, both in the book and or mentioned in the book, and obviously appear on camera in the film. What happened to these guys after they got out of the army? Well. Some of them went on to become famous. I mean, I think that's always kind of an interesting uh, aspect of the story is you have all these very talented young artists, unknown at the time, and some of them go on to quite amazing careers. Um, uh, Ellsworth Kelly became a very famous minimalist painter and sculptor, and I think he won a Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. Uh, Bill Blass became a fashion designer, and while his name is not widely known today, he was huge in the 1980s. I would say he was as big as Ralph Lauren or any of those folks in the 1980s. Oh, wow. Uh, he had a lot of other people who had very successful art and design careers. Um, 
But I mean, people went into all sorts of different careers. And then one of the uh, interesting things for me, um, we are you know, doing a biography project right now where we're trying to, I mean, we're just in the early stages of it. And we're about to put something up on uh, our ghostarmy.org website. But we are, we have, we're trying to do bios for these guys. So it's like we know something about the famous guys and we know something about the guys we interviewed, but then there's all these other guys we don't know anything about. And as we've done right. the bios, it's really been fascinating. And people went into movie design. People became sort of uh, uh, dancers, television producers. But other people, you know, became uh, handymen and repairmen. I mean, it's, it, it, again, it, it's a snapshot of America. Yeah, it's heavy on the arts. It's heavy on some of the, uh, the technology stuff. But there was a wide range of people, and they went off and did a, a, a wide range of things. And, and a lot of them, you know, had a, a kind of an interesting impact on post-war culture. And so that's like, like an, our, one of our new areas of ghost army study is this look <laughs> at what this cohort of soldiers did after the war. And, and I've really been, been fascinated to, to learn all these stories, you know, being guys who became art professors, guys who became um, physics professors, you know, all sorts of different stuff. And part of that, of course, is because of the, the GI Bill and the opportunities for education and advancement. Sure. Um, and, and, and I mean, it's the other thing to say, and, and it's sort of obvious, but it's also sad, is that almost all of them have died, right? Yeah, that, so, that was my other question, is how many yeah. are, are still around, if, if any? I, I know 11 soldiers who are still with us. I'm in touch with 11, and I'm not aware of any others. There probably are a few others, but that's 11 out of 1,100. Actually, it's 11 out of 1,300 because I'm including in that a, a sister deception unit that operated in Italy, the 3133rd Signal Company Special. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's, it's, you know, it's less than 1% at this point. Sure. The oldest veteran of the unit is uh, Gil Seltzer. And Gil is 106 years old oh, wow. and living in uh, West Orange, New Jersey. I talked to him a week or so ago. He's oh, doing pretty yeah. well. Um, and uh, we we talk pretty frequently. And there's a there's another veteran, uh, Stanley Nance in Utah, who's 103. I'm gonna say I think he's 103. <sighs> wow. So geez. you know, and so you know, this is a great transition point for me. Can I transition to something, or do you yeah, know, absolutely. You back off and not not you know, absolutely. You to, is it a visual me, transformation? Do you want me to give you? Do you want me to give the controls back to you, or can I keep driving? <laughs> no, you go that? ahead. Especially <laughs> if, if, how do we feel about this? Yeah, yeah <laughs> you go ahead. Especially if you're going uh, to New Orleans by chance. Well, um, I wasn't going to, but I can get there. Let's go there uh, eventually. We don't have to do it right now, but go ahead. Yeah, go go fair ahead. Enough. Well, um, so so we started a, a nonprofit called the Ghost Army Legacy Project, and mm -hmm. one of our uh, goals and one of the things we're trying to accomplish mm. is to have Congress award this unit a Congressional Gold Medal. So, and this is a, it's not the Medal of Honor, not the same thing, but a Congressional mm -hmm. Gold Medal is. Uh, you know, has been awarded to individuals and uh, uh, and organizations, units that have been under you know under honored kind of at the time. You know, it's kind of mm -hmm. a it's kind of a chance to go back and say, well, we really want to you know honor honor this group. And a number of World War II um, uh, uh, units have been honored with a gold medal. And so we are working on getting a congressional gold medal for these guys. And we recently hit an amazing milestone that I wanted to share with you, which mm -hmm. is that we have. Um, uh, gotten 290 
congressman, 290 members of the House of Representatives to co-sponsor this bill, which is kind of like the magic number. It's two thirds of the House that then unlocks the path forward so that the bill can be the House rules now allow the bill to be brought to the floor. So it looks like we're going to get House passage of the bill. And in the coming weeks, we're going to start lobbying the Senate. And we really, you know, we would love everybody's help in lobbying the United States Senate to award the uh, Congressional Gold Medal to this unit. And I mean, the reason that that I brought it up at that time is because it's one of the things, if there's only 11 guys left, right? right. I want to mm. do this. It'd be awesome to get this done while some of these guys are still with us. And that just seems so important to me. And we have all sorts of information about that on the website, which is ghostarmy.org. But um, yeah, only only 11 left, Um, you know, and they'll all be gone soon. Mm You know, and then and then there's and it's why it's so important. We just that's a commendable uh, undertaking. So we we really do appreciate you bringing that information. Thank you, and it's why we're trying to get all their stories down and get interviews and collect material and stuff because it's such a great story. And and we have we have actually collected a lot of material from veterans and their families that we have donated to the National World War II Museum in. New Orleans. See, I got did it. get there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> before before, a, before yeah. you go there, I'm going to ask this, and then I want to go back to New Orleans because I think what you're, what's going on there is amazing. For our listeners here that that are, are compelled to want to help with the Congressional Gold Medal, what can we do to help that along? I mean, can we write letters to people? Can we? What can we do? Yeah. So you can contact your uh, uh, senator and. There's a number of ways that you can do that. You you probably can't just call them up and say, hey, Senator. Um, (laughs) But you can uh, can, uh, reach out uh, to their district office uh, is a good way to start. We also are going to have a list uh, soon on our website in the coming weeks at ghostarmy.org. We have a gold medal page, and then you click on that, and there's a what can I do page. And we have a whole sort of uh, lobbying strategy for reaching out to their staffer in Washington who's who's the person responsible for this. And so if people go to ghostarmy.org, and you know, we're not really going to start the Senate lobbying for a couple of weeks, but but you go there, you can find sort of the information on how you can do that. And it, it's interesting, you were talking earlier about um, at least maybe I imagined it, but talking earlier about civics and and this is um, this is to me has been a great civics lesson in in working for the last uh, five years to uh, to get this bill passed. And this is we are now kind of in the we are in our home stretch I mean, in a way, not the home stretch. That's not right. But we are. This is our. We're going to do it in the next year and a half. Right. We're going to do it in this congressional session because because it, it's now or never is my view at this point. Mm-hmm. And we've mm-hmm. got the support in the House. I think we can get the support in the Senate. You can go to the website and check that out. But even if you couldn't, if you didn't want to go to the website, if you just if you just looked up your senator's office phone or email and called them and said, I just want you to know that I would like you to co-sponsor. Great word. Co-sponsor the Ghost Army Congressional Gold Medal Act. Even that would be helpful. Sure. Excellent. And and it I is. I expect all um, three of you guys to do that. You know. I, oh, absolutely. I'm yeah. I'm looking on. Yeah. I was actually just going to Doing ask. Right now. I went on and it looks like it's HR 707 is the name. Well, of the HR bill. 707 is the House bill, and so the Senate bill has is going to be introduced on April 26th, I think, mm. and it doesn't have a number yet. 
Okay. So after it's introduced, it'll have a number, and that's that's really when the lobbying can kick in. So right, we're at a little kind of a two-week period where it's a little hard to do it because there isn't a specific bill that you can point people at. But it'll it'll come out in uh, as I said around April twenty-six. That's very good to know uh, because you said uh, assumed correctly that we're going to help you out, but as you said that it's a good civics lesson. You're right. I just formulated a lesson plan idea in my head. So we may have some students trying to help out on this. Yeah, no, I, and we've had that in the past, and it's been great. One of our uh, absolutely best lobbyists is, uh, and she's 17 now, but she started lobbying uh, two years ago, uh, is uh, a young woman named Madeline Christensen, and she is the great-granddaughter of a Ghost Army veteran, Stanley mm. Nance. And, I mean, she's made two trips to Washington. She has, I think, at some point in the last year, two years, she has probably called or emailed virtually every representative's <laughs> office and half the senator's offices. I mean, she is a one-person powerhouse. We have another a young woman in Massachusetts, Reese Holmes, who's involved with the uh, – uh, children of the American Revolution organization. She's done. A, she has no connection to the Ghost Army, but she's raised money for uh, our efforts to put up uh, historical markers, and she has also done a lot of lobbying with the New England delegation. So we appreciate that. You know, yeah, it 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 is. People think that there's nothing that they can do that affects the behavior of their senators and representatives, but it's not true. You can you can make your voice heard, and this is a great way to do that. And it's a great bill because there's no partisan interest here, mm -hmm. right? We have um, we have the most liberal and the most conservative members of Congress have supported this bill in, in, in this session and in previous sessions. And, um, you know, and so it's, it's a great way that I think it's a great way to bring people together, right? Here's something we can all do and celebrate together that that's worth celebrating and honoring. Yeah, um, absolutely. And this would obviously, um, the passage of this would bring a lot more attention to it. Mm -hmm. And then um, you would have uh, Pearl Harbor style movies made out of it. So, the, <laughs> oh boy, explosions and hopefully not easy. more acting. Easy. What? What? No, okay. Easy. That's I would uh, I would be remiss if I didn't now bring up the. Uh, <laughs> the uh, because I know that. Uh, what do you know? I'm not sure exactly. You know. I'm not sure exactly how you uh, how you work this out, but uh, I know that Ben Affleck is connected to a, a potential project uh, aligned with the Ghost Army. Is there anything you can share with us on that? I'm sorry, our line is disconnected. <laughs> um, yeah, so so a little bit, and I would say that that's that project is kind of in a hiatus or or. Uh, um, what, what is it? Hibernating moment. <laughs> what is it the bears do in the winter? But I didn't want you to think I was telling a joke. So um, uh, uh, the movie rights to the book and documentary were uh, uh, optioned by um, a producer named Andrew Lazar and working with Universal Studios. And he brought uh, Ben Affleck in who agreed to direct and, um, and star in that film. But uh, they kind of ran into some as, as so often happens in Hollywood. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. it's amazing. Any movie ever gets made that somehow, <laughs> somehow it, uh, you know, things happen that, uh, that it, uh, it, it, it got off the fast track. And mm. so, um, it's, it's in a, in a kind of a stasis at the moment. And so we don't know exactly where that's going to go. And gotcha, uh, gotcha. I think it will get made eventually, 
maybe not with Ben Affleck. Um, and and I, I had a very lovely meeting with Ben Affleck and he was terrific and really interested and enthusiastic about it. And um, I will say that he did kind of uh, freak me out just a little bit in that <laughs> we're in this conference room with like, I don't know, three or four, five, six people. Um, my wife and I were both there out at his, uh, the studio at the production company that he has with uh, Matt Damon. And I started talking and he just started writing down everything I was saying. <laughs> like he was like, like a kid in school, taking notes, you know, taking notes. <laughs> and he was, Tell me more. And so I was like, wow. I was like very impressed with this. So he was, I think he was very committed to it. I think some things happened that, that uh, made it uh, hard for that to happen. But the mm. weird thing is I probably shouldn't be saying any of this in the podcast, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, the weird thing is that, um, that, Still, every time there's a news story about Ben Affleck, it says, and next year he's making the ghost army. Yeah. Like, is he going to be 80? Ben Affleck just turned 80, and next year he's making the ghost army. So I, just, uh, uh, I wonder what the heck is going on with that. Just like I wonder what the heck's going on with my computer, which just told me it was about to go to sleep. So oh, I quickly <laughs> pushed a button so it wouldn't do that. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, if by some chance this film does happen to progress – I there's some I know I know people I know actors you know that you know could be interested in participating just saying I mean you don't have to you know obviously don't have to you know help out or put our names in or anything like that but I'm just saying that you know I, I you know I just know some people I'll put you on the list Okay. I'm just saying we'll have to. It's always my answer. I'm just I'm just saying that that you know if if it happens we might have to have Rick back and he might have to bring a special guest. I don't know. We'll just throw a name out there, Ben Affleck, uh, to, to join us. <laughs> yeah, you know, I did have uh, when when and this this process on the movie's gone on for about five years and there's been occasional bursts of publicity about it. Uh, in you know variety and, and other places but i did have uh somebody who was an acquaintance not a friend but who was an acquaintance who who mentioned that uh you know who was very interested in be, being an extra of some sort in the film and i made some you know so yeah i'll you know i'll put you on the list or you know i don't really have a lot of influence that he was very offended he was very offended with me and, really uh, yeah um, so I hope I haven't offended, uh, you know, Hatfield or anybody here. We don't yeah. care. No, no. We if, don't if, care. if I had a nickel for every time I had been turned down for a film, <laughs> then I wouldn't need to pursue acting. Honestly, it'd be. The question know. is, would you have more nickels for that or more nickels for the times we say Wikipedia about your Wikipedia? You know, both page? together. I could, you know, <laughs> I wanted to write a book called there's a, thousand ways a movie can die <laughs> that I, is I, for certain i do actually that is a, I, I have that book in mind so don't steal that one from me well, we won't say I, was, I was talking to uh, a, a screenwriter friend of mine and he said oh yeah that's great but that number's too low <laughs> <laughs> I believe that's it. great yeah, but there's a there's a lot of interest in it, and there's other uh, studios and people interested in things in flux. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, but Hollywood, wow, what a, that's been just like the the gold medal is a civics lesson. I've had a Hollywood lesson too. Nah. There you go. <laughs> and you know, I know that you've got a podcast out there as well that we should probably talk about because well, uh, I actually have a so we're actually starting a Ghost Army podcast. But oh, nice. in, in addition to that, because that's probably that's with my co-author Liz Sales, and we're going to try to get that going sometime in the in the summer. 
Uh, we just interviewed a magician the other day about the ghost army because yep. the ghost army has a lot in common with magic. Was it Pendulette? No, it was not somebody you know, but it was okay. a very interesting British magician. Okay, I feel better because Penn's cool. kind of blown me off when I've asked for interviews. So I'll talk to him. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but I also, I also, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that um, I currently co-host a um it's kind of competition so you might want to put a tone in right here so nobody can hear anything i'm saying Um, i currently host a live cast called history happy hour a weekly history live cast that appears on the uh, youtube and facebook page of stephen ambrose historical tours oh pot him down pot him down (laughs) (laughs) and we i know this concept is going to be really unfamiliar to you but we interview somebody each week about history really uh, i know crazy right who would ever dream of that and uh, i've co-hosted with my buddy chris anderson and if you want to find out about it if you search history happy hours and stephen ambrose History Happy Hour and Stephen Ambrose, you can you can probably find it, and maybe you'll be kind enough to put that link up on the, your your show notes on your show notes page. And if, there siphons you, off the last tens of people that are listening. <laughs> assuming you have a show notes page, but it's not a podcast, right? We're right. not available where people get their podcasts. We are only available on YouTube and Facebook, and the shows are archived, but it's a it's a visual thing. It's it's really gotcha. totally different. It's not up to the intellectual standards. <laughs> No, so, yeah. so it's not really it's not really reputable. It's more like carny trash, but still <laughs> kind of entertaining. Jesus Hatfield. That's exactly right. <laughs> we are, we are uh, but one of the great things about it is because it's happy hour that we all have a cocktail during the show. Hatfield, so. that's right up your alley. Well, we and used to drink on this one fairly regularly too. It's, it's but, hard um, to do so. in the, when it starts early, you know. It's so hard. what you're saying is, is if we rename this show the History Bros Happy Hour, we can reinstitute the uh, the alcohol. I would, I would sue your butt off. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I think we should just name this the History Bros Happy Hour featuring Ben Affleck and he's never on here but we just keep saying he's coming he's going to talk about this new movie but it's like okay he didn't make it this week so we'll we'll it'll be next week so tune in next week and I cannot imagine that would cause you any legal problems (laughs) well wait wait wait, wait, wait. legal advice is to go ahead his good buddy Matt Damon legitimately gets told that he couldn't be on the show on that's that's right every night uh, (laughs) by Jimmy Kimmel by Jimmy Kimmel I just want to say that I'm impressed by not only your um, your storytelling and your research, but also your legal expertise. <laughs> it's uh, you're just you really you really are a Renaissance man, and I have to say that that that, that impresses me. I so try, yeah, I so try. Yeah. I wanted to yeah. be a lawyer. That you know, so so funny. Like, so I'm a writer and a filmmaker, and I lead history tours in Europe, and I do all this fun stuff. And then somebody had this post on Facebook, and they said, "What was your dream job when you were in, you know, high school that you never did?" And I was like, mm. "It was to be a lawyer." So, oh wow! So, so I'm really glad it worked out the way it did. You know, yeah. <laughs> I didn't get my dream job, and so I can't do all that legal drudgery. I have to spend all my time reading about history and telling people about history and traveling to historic places. That's terrible. Oh, rats. Yeah. I know. Rats. <laughs> how just how just god awful boring that sounds. I mean, yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, I have one more question. Oh, 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 oh. I'm sorry. Because it, it, it sounds like we're about to start to wrap up. And but I, I do I have wanna... a response to the boring thing. I don't know if we oh. can get it in. I don't want to get it in. Oh, please. Oh, please. But I can please. do it at the end. It can be a, no, like no, a wrap Go ahead. Go ahead. No, let's not circle back. Let's go ahead and strike while the iron's hot. Let's go yeah, ahead. Yeah, so, so um, um, 20 years ago or so when I was in advertising and we were doing this project, we were promoting something that the History Channel was doing with the Nuremberg trials. And I was looking to figure out which pictures we were going to use with a young guy in our office named Ray. And I said, uh, I, I, um, I said, well, I like this one because, you know, you can see Hermann Goering, you know, in it. And Hermann Goering was the like number two Nazi under mm -hmm. Hitler. And he was the head right. of the Luftwaffe. And, 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 um, and Ray didn't know who Hermann Goering was. And oh. I, I kind of gave him a little bit of a hard time. And, and Ray said, well, he said, well, I'm not really into history. <laughs> and so if you know me, those are fighting words. Oh. <laughs> and I said, Ray, given that history is everything that ever happened to everybody, given <laughs> that it's the hopes and dreams and triumphs and tragedies of every soul who ever walked the planet. Tell me, Ray, what part of that are you not into? <laughs> so Ray doesn't work for me anymore. <laughs> He's a good guy. I'm friends with him on Facebook. He, he's gotten over it. But, but <laughs> I but have yeah, the same reaction when people. boring thing. Don't go there with me. Yeah. Yeah. I have the same reaction when people ask me about McCoy. So it's kind of a. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, we tomato, tomato, really. So it know. is time for the weekly. Have Have you killed any McCoys lately? Mm. Um. Let me see the day. Still, well, it's one fifty here. So it's still, <laughs> still, you know, still, still really. Oh, yeah. There's still some time. <laughs> Um, got to polish up my double barrel shotgun and grab my jug o moonshine and then, uh, you know, clip clop down the road, I guess. See where the day takes you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows? What's time, really? I mean, you know, I get there when I get there. No, that's horrible. That's, um, that's terribly horrible. Considering the number of, uh, well, no, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to drag down the mood. But we've actually had some, like uh, one of our former students was um, was killed in a drive-by shooting or oh. something. So, mm. yeah, it's kind of, uh, it happens more mm. than I would like to actually think. So, yeah. And just, I've just brought the entire tone down. Incredibly <sighs> disappointing. Okay. So it's time for Brian uh, to ask his question. Yes. To save us, please. Uh, Rick, tell us about your experience with the uh, Lex Lexington Historical Society in Lexington, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Okay. You're digging into my past here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I lived in Lexington for about 20 years, and uh, some war started there. I'm trying to remember which one it was. It, uh, it's inconsequential. It was the Peloponnesian War, but it might have been the, um, uh, uh, the War of American Independence, the American Revolution, Battle of Lexington. And so I got involved with the Lexington Historical Society um, uh, and uh, ended up making a film about the Battle of Lexington, a small film that they show there uh, when people visit and ended up uh, writing their guidebook. And um, I, my wife and I both have complete uh, colonial attire outfits, uh, oh. which we have worn many on many an occasion, uh, uh, leading people on trips and stuff in Lexington. But and I'm also, you know, out of that, I got really developed a great interest in the American Revolution. And now through uh, uh, Stephen Ambrose historical tours in addition mm -hmm. to doing a ghost army tour which I do in Europe uh, nice. we um, 
uh, which you can go to their website and find out about. Uh, I am doing a, a Revolutionary War tour. It's about it's from Boston to Quebec. Uh, oh, we were wow. supposed to do it last cool. fall. Obviously, it didn't happen. Fingers crossed that it's going to happen this fall. And uh, where we uh, it's basically covers the first two years of the revolution in the northern theater. And we go, we do Boston, we do Lexington, Concord, we do Saratoga, Ticonderoga, all the way up Valcour mm. Island, uh, Lake Champlain, uh, and all the way up into Quebec, which, which, as you know, and many people don't know, we one of the many times that we tried to invade Canada was uh, uh, in 17, uh, you know, 1775, 76 um, with, uh, with uh, Benedict Arnold and others involved in that effort. So, uh, so all interesting stuff. Yeah. When you do <laughs> these tours on uh, the ghost army tours, do you dress up as an inflatable as well? Or? I'm invisible. <laughs> I'm okay. invisible on those tours. Yeah. Oh, wow. I camouflage beautifully. No, I don't, <laughs> but we do, Bring an inflatable with us. Really? Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. And we, oh. when we are in England, where the Ghost Army first worked with their inflatables, that's where we set up our inflatable oh, uh, wow. at, uh, at Walton Hall, which is a wonderful English sort of manor house uh, outside of Stratford on Avon, which is where those guys bivouacked and actually where they first started working with inflatables. So we go do the same. Oh thing. wow! Yeah, it's oh, pretty wow. cool. No, do they have any of these original inflatables? No, on? no, it's all replicas that we're dealing with at this point. It's stuff that I've had made basically, mm. um, <laughs> because there's not a big, uh, you know, inflatable World War II tank market. Right, right. right. Well, outside, I mean, Russia. Obviously, there's a big one in Russia. <laughs> well, but they're not making the right tanks. Uh, that, that's uh, true. Well, and the thing, look, seriously, the thing is about inflatables <laughs> is that the the ones that they used are, you know, they're realistic looking from. Uh, uh, you know, 200 yards away, they're not hyper realistic looking so that if I was standing 20 feet from one, it would look like the real thing. So right. what I've tried to do with inflatables is match what they did, not create something that's more realistic because we have the technology to do it. Sure. Mm. Oh, that makes that sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Oh, this has been a blast. Oh my yeah, gosh. Great. <laughs> be great. Thank you so much, Rick Beyer for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for talking about the Ghost Army and honoring those guys and what they did in World War II, which I just think is extraordinary. Absolutely. And like, Absolutely. A, like we said, you can check out more on the Ghost Army on, uh, let's see, Amazon Prime Streaming. Uh, the Ghost Army documentary is there. You have a book out, I know. And then, of course, you can catch uh, the live stream with Rick and Chris Anderson on Sunday afternoons at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Central. And then, like you said, and, and let us know. We'll we'll help you out uh, promote the podcast because uh, because we will. <laughs> but uh, well, and, and there's also rickbuyer.net where you can yeah. get a lot of information from um, his uh, just Yeah, that kind of covers my all this different stuff I do. Mm, uh, right. Yeah, it's all there's links to it all there. That's actually probably the a, a great place to go because you can kind of start from there and, and figure out where you want to go. Outstanding. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, yes. This has just been a blast. So yes, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you for taking yeah. that time thank from you. your uh, your drinking YouTube episode to uh, <laughs> come on board and uh, have a chat with us. Hatfield, I think you can like watch it and drink right along with him if you want to feel. And like just you're... remember, it's not slurring. You're 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 talking in cursive, and it's elegant. That's it's right. Enthusiastic.
Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, for that, uh, with that, I think we'll wrap things up for this episode of the History Bros. Uh, for myself, Jason Rude, Brian Geldmacher, and Jason Hatfield, thank you again to you for listening, and thank you again for Rick Beyer for joining us talking about this awesome topic. Have a good one, everybody. See ya. Peace out. Deuces.